0: All right, welcome back to the podcast. We're getting closer and closer. I think this is episode 98. We are almost to episode 100, and I want to do a giveaway. So for episode 100, I want to give away a $100 gift certificate to either Barnes & Noble or Audible, so be your choice. If you like those hard copy books, some of you are like, I want to be able to listen to it on my commute. Whatever the reason, you you will get to choose. So here's what you need to do. You need to subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe anywhere. Uh, It's available on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can probably find it. And then you need to share the podcast on social media and tag me in it. Now, in case you didn't listen to last episode, my Facebook account was hacked So if you already follow me on Facebook, me or the podcast, then you're going to have to go over and or follow the podcast on my new account. So in the show notes, you can find the new This Is Her Story podcast Facebook page, and you can find a link to my new Facebook page. You can tag me on Instagram. I am excited for you to meet my new friend, Dr. Jenny Matheny. Uh, I actually recorded this several months ago. Uh, I did. It, I recorded it right before I started the neurodivergent clergy series, and so that's why it's getting posted a little bit later. You're going to enjoy it. She's a lot of fun, and she shares her experience of uh, her call to ministry, doing the wrestling with the scriptures, uh, and then also discerning uh, her next steps of education. And that's more towards the end of the episode. We really get into how do you discern. How much education you need and those, some, some of those steps. So we, we get into that. Uh, she also talks about discerning ending your church or closing your church or whether or not your church is viable to continue on or has it experienced that full life cycle? And now it's time to do some hospice work and walk with that congregation to closing. As we're coming out of the pandemic, some of us are going to experience that. We may be discerning whether or not our church is viable and able to stay open or whether or not the season has ended. There's a temptation to think that age of the church plays a role, but it really doesn't. Uh, So she talks about closing their church after only a few years of planting it. And then, you know, sometimes we are an older church and we think that it's time to close, but then we discover new ways that God wants to revitalize us. So we want to avoid that temptation of just because our church is numerically young doesn't mean that it's still viable. And the same thing is true just because our church is decades old doesn't mean that it's time to put it to rest. So just some great insight In this, there's a few twists and turns, so we kind of, we talk about a few different aspects. We also talk about uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary, which is where she teaches, and the uh, Wine Coop Center is relaunching and embracing some new aspects of ministry. So Some of you who are familiar with the Wine Coop Center will appreciate um, the information that she shares about their transitioning. Lots of good stuff. Enjoy it. Please share it. And I will see you in the next episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Well, welcome to the podcast. I am excited that you are here. I've had this on. My superintendent obviously graciously connected us. I appreciate that. Oh, uh, me too. And you're at uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary. Yep. And you live so obviously you live there, right? You live actually. I, I am two hours away.
1: Yeah. So I commute in. Yeah. I had we had just moved to Kansas. Uh, I had just started a full time job at Manhattan Christian College. And so, in my first year in, um, I ended up getting an invitation to apply to NTS, and so it was sort of like we had just moved our kids because of ministry and, and whatnot a few years, like a few times within the previous two years, and I thought, oh my, like, NTS isn't that far away, maybe this commute thing will work, and it has actually worked beautifully, and then the year I was going to maybe consider moving, um, We decided to wait because my son had just started high school and then COVID hit. And so I'm so glad we didn't move because we would have basically moved and then like had to isolate. Yeah,
0: I would say the last two years, it doesn't really matter. Do you, so do you teach anything on campus or is everything online? Well, okay. Yeah, that's an interesting
1: question, Joanne. So I usually teach in the classroom and most of our courses um, have dual modality. So we'll have students that have moved to Kansas City that are in the classroom, but also Zoom at the same time. And so that has been interesting to get used to. But as you know, with the pandemic, things have shifted and we've all learned to be extremely flexible. And so actually this semester, I was supposed to teach a course on campus and then one uh, fully asynchronous online. Uh, But then there was a shift with COVID and we're all like online. So those courses are actually like this, like Zoom. So it's been fluid as, as most of us have yeah have had to do in ministry and teach. teaching. Yeah.
0: So if you're on Zoom, because you got this dual modality, what does it look like?
1: Can they can the
0: people in person see the people on Zoom and vice versa?
1: Yes. And so that actually has been interesting. So NTS actually made the shift a few years before COVID. So we were ready like <laughs> without knowing it uh, to, to do this move. But yeah, so if you're in the classroom there's some TV screens that are up like on each side of of me where I'm teaching and standing. And so all of the Zoom students will be on the screen. So you're able to see them. And I've always like thankfully had a student tech because when I teach, it's hard for me to like focus a lot on (laughs) different things. And so I'm usually just thinking about what I'm lecturing on. And so the tech will often see if there's a hand up and then we can engage and stop. And so it's actually worked pretty well. Uh, but we're actually making a big shift with the curriculum with NTS and actually shifting to more like fully online and synchronous because we found with COVID, actually, you can really connect with people this way. And with one modality, it's, it's actually a lot easier. Um, and we haven't had that many students really moving to Kansas right. City. So this has kind of been the trajectory for a while. And so I think we're just, you know, we've been praying and discerning about it. And we're like, yeah, we need to make the shift.
0: And so you're doing your online via Zoom now, Mm -hmm.
1: which is very different. Right. Yeah. I think the Zoom model, it has just changed everything. And then as you know, like with with doing this through church and different things, you can do breakout groups. Students can get to know each other and it's so much better. And even with like the asynchronous course I teach, I will still upload teaching videos, even 15 minute snippets, you know, which, yeah, you get a feel for the professor, how they teach, who they are, which... Yeah, I think like what you were doing before would be really hard. It's a, that's, a, that's a hard learning environment, I think. Um, yeah, especially when one of the best parts of seminary is that transformational aspect of getting to know people, relationships, learning together. And
0: I can see how it would definitely be much more engaging because just the difference between people, I guess if people haven't done the old school online, like mm-hmm. um, where you just have discussion threads, that's all you have. Right. Um. I there was a huge difference in being able to connect just by going to the the professor doing their lectures by YouTube, and then I can imagine even more so now. And then I, I think for some of the next podcasts I have coming up, I'm working on doing a series on neurodivergent clergy, and I feel like those clergy could engage this m- much better than you know, maybe better than in-person um, mm-hmm. or if they can't go in-person, obviously much better than they can the the old school way, the old school right. format.
1: Yep. I think, and it's amazing. uh As you know, we're, we just get so much busier and busier. And a lot of master's students, doctoral students have children. And I remember being in the master's and I did love being in person on campus in Vancouver, Canada. I went to Regent college, but my husband and I were going at the same time. And we literally, he would like be holding, are like one and a half year old uh, outside of Hebrew class. And then I would leave Hebrew and hand him off. And, you know, we were just about, I mean, it was just chaotic. And life's chaotic, anyways, and very frenetic with children, but it's wonderful. Uh, but as a student, it actually cuts down some of that travel time that you can have more for family. And I don't know, I just think there's a lot of pros uh, that I think COVID helped to bring out. Um, even though, of course, most of us ideally want to be in person, embodied, right? Uh, all of that. And with NTS, one of the things I know that as the professors and you know the faculty and staff were talking, we really value connection, and so we did not want to do asynchronous, you know, the old school discussion thread kind of thing. We wanted to have that interaction, and so we were really processing how to do that well, looking at other models, other schools, and like because we really value the embodied community, having that convene model where students can come for a week on campus you know, spend time in these kind of intensive courses, but then connect, we found that just kind of looking over the past few years, students love that week. Um, and I know as a, as a mom, like when I would get to go to do my week of PhD in England, um, at, in Canterbury, it was so wonderful to just be able to focus on that one thing and those relationships and trying to do the best of the both ends.
0: Okay. Now your, your title is Assistant Professor of Old Testament. Tell me, explain that to me, how that works. People like this isn't their world. So they don't know what that means and how that works. Right,
1: right. No, I love, I love sharing because I am a newbie in it. (laughs) I didn't, you know, come from like a real academic background. And in fact, I had never planned on teaching. This was never part of my, you know, what I thought part of my trajectory, the Lord just sort of, and I'll encourage your listeners to, if you have a lot of closed doors in your life, like it is the kindness of God. I I struggle because I was like, no doors are opening but it's because I think the Lord knew I would just settle with whatever. (laughs) Of course, I wouldn't be happy in the long run, but like, as I, you know, we were church planting and it was so funny. I was looking for a job. My youngest started kindergarten and I was like, yeah, I guess I should find something. Literally, Joanne, every job I applied to, closed door, even cleaning hotel rooms. And I have done that before. (laughs) So I'm like, literally, uh, and and there's nothing wrong with that. I loved it. You know, it was just like, oh, I actually, you know, especially with young kids, it's like, you get to close a door and the room is clean. It's wonderful. I did it uh, that up at Carey Center in uh, in Vancouver, Canada. But anyways, long story short, I just remember talking about what I was passionate about. I had gotten my master's in Old Testament and everyone I talked to would be like, you should apply to teach. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. And so finally I did. And it was like the Lord was just like opening doors. I mean, it was just so much fun to just go on that journey and absolutely frightening. You start out usually as an assistant professor in the US context, and then you'll move after a few years, you go through this big review process. They usually are checking on your teaching student evaluations, um, you know, all that fun stuff. Also, how much are you publishing? And and different schools will have different marks they want you to hit. Um, and then after a few years, you'll have that big review. And then they'll say, all right, now you're at associate professor, and then that will go on and to the next level, which is like full professor. So yeah, so it is kind of fun to um, have those reviews and and try to hit those marks. And Yeah. And so and I'm actually up for review this year. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that.
0: That is exciting. I also didn't realize that your publishing plays a role in, Mm -hmm. in those levels, you know, like, I mean, obviously you see the different professors writing stuff, but I didn't realize that there's reason behind
1: it. Right. Yep. And at a seminary, it's kind of interesting because we're in a kind of a Christian context, there's different things that can play. So some professors will publish more than others. Some, it's more engagement with the church and doing things like that. And so really depending on your institution, um, there's kind of more weight given into different areas. And so I definitely love publishing and research and that's something that gives me a lot of life and love conferences and all of that so that is going to be kind of a big piece for me also love engaging with the church but but yeah but every professor is a little bit different with where kind of with their calling and they invest their time similar as I imagine to pastors right like some are you know very love teaching and gathering and researching and some you know might be more gifted in certain other areas and so but but usually Publishing is definitely a kind of a key piece.
0: So you've been there at Nazarene Theological Seminary for three, four years, something like
1: that? Yeah, so this is my third year. So I finished my full third year, which is crazy because I was realizing as I was coming up for review that I've only been in the classroom two of the semesters because of COVID. So where were you before that then? Yeah, so I was at Manhattan Christian College, and that's here in Manhattan, Kansas, that school's part of the rest, the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement. Um, a lot of times, if you hear of like non-denominational Christian churches, they'll be maybe part of that movement. Not all of them, but but a lot of them. So yeah, that was my very first kind of full time post. I had adjunct taught for lots of years before that at George Fox University, Multnomah University. But but yeah, that's kind of why we moved to Kansas. And and so then when this opportunity came up at NTS, I I thought, huh, seminary? I hadn't. Really thought about that before, actually. But you know, I, as I really began to pray and think about p- applying for that position, I thought, you know, I love seminary. It was one of the most transformative places for me in my journey. And I thought, yeah, let's go for it. See what happens. And Here I am.
0: I'm gonna go back to what you said in that. What was it about seminary? Because I've heard a lot of people say that. What was it about seminary that was transformative? Mm. So I guess two Parts to that, right? What particular aspects was it, and then what was the transformation that took place? So when we
1: went, when we moved to Canada, I was not planning to go to school, and I had two young kids, ten month old and a three year old. Um, and so my husband was like, for years, had you know been dreaming about getting his MDiv and you know going to this school. We even had a cat named Vancouver a few years earlier when we lived in, in uh, California. So this was kind of all part of his you know big trajectory. And I knew I always wanted to go on to school. I just was never quite sure what I always thought, well, maybe counseling. And I did start a master's in counseling for a small bit, but then got pregnant. We had to move with ministry. And, you know, it's just like all these shifts and and changes. I I took a class for free. It was Old Testament theology. So as the spouse of a student, I got to do that. And with young kids, you know, like I'm a stay at home mom and I'm like, wow, like, oh, I get a break. This is great. And so sitting in the classroom and I was listening to this Old Testament professor talk and I literally started like tearing up and I thought, wow, I want to know the Bible like that. And so it kind of part of the transformation for me was, I think, just that desire to know the Bible like that, like just kind of like resurfacing and then getting a chance to, I ended up entering into a program and getting a master's in Old Testament. And this is not even thinking someday I'd want to teach. It was just for me. Um, and. And then a second part of that huge transformation was we came from a tradition that did not encourage women in ministry, women in leadership. And so I was sort of, we were sort of in that sort of theology as we, when we started our masters and, and I didn't realize Joanne, the deep damage that does of thinking because of my gender, I am less than, and so I thought, you know, like a lot you know, people it's like, I want to be obedient to God and I want to do the right thing. So I'm, you know, most people are coming at a place of wanting to be obedient. Right. And that's just what they've assumed the scriptures say about the roles of men and women. But then as I began to process that and the Lord gently helped me deconstruct and reconstruct, I know we say those words, but sort of like, you know, here's some other ways to think about it. Here's some other ways to approach those texts. Look, let's look at the entire Bible, you know, look at these stories in a new way and. And then seeing women and this is always the key i think for a lot of us seeing them in their gifting and thinking wow the spirit is on them how could i ever <laughs> think that like that no right and so i remember it hitting me one day I was in the courtyard we lived at saint andrews this um housing development right by uh, the campus by so ubc and regent college and i remember thinking about those passage that passage in genesis about being made in the image of god and It hit me that I actually believe that I am not made of the image as much as my husband. And I just started to weep. And I thought, oh my goodness, like that can't be true. We're both in the image of God. Like I think there's a whole area I need to start to rethink about and to let myself be creative with what is the image of God. Right. And so it literally felt like chains fell off. And I felt free for the first time to like let myself be who I am. And that there's no limit for what God has called me to do. And so it was sort of for me, just that being able to intellectually and spiritually and emotionally kind of put all those pieces together and just say, okay, God, like I actually, maybe I don't know (laughs) the journey that I'm going to be on. And I am going to just say yes. And, and let myself kind of reopen up to some things that I had been not thinking uh, correctly about, um, but it was such a gentle process. Um, and so I know even with my own students, I'm always very gentle because for most of us, we're wanting to do the right thing before God. And, so, you know, even I know when I taught at Manhattan Christian College, a lot of the young women are very, you know, tr- you know, they're in that stream that the college is affirming of women in leadership. They're fantastic. But a lot of the young women that would be sitting in my class at 18 years old, they're just like, well, I kind of want to speak at women's conferences. I know I can't preach. And then I like, tuck that away. I'm like, you don't think so. <laughs> so I always invite them in my office and like, well, let's talk about that. And then I'll say, you know, maybe, you know, if you start to like, maybe feel a little differently, we can have more conversations and kind of a long story to say, yeah, that was part of my transformation process and just learning how much I love to study and research. And I was really, it felt more like a personal journey for me getting my master's than anything. Um, Cause I really wasn't thinking what type of job at the end I thought I'm just going to be really educated Sunday school teacher (laughs) you know and maybe preach a few sermons who knows um I really had no idea at that point where it would lead um but the journey was just it was a gift and I I think that actually is one of the things I keep God keeps teaching me is it's the journey right like it's not always the end result
0: yeah it's important especially for for women to do that inner work Mm -hmm. um alongside with scripture and really rooting our identity in Christ, um, rather than in some of the you know bad theology that's out there and that we have adopted in some ways almost by osmosis, like not even realizing you're adopting it. You know, because I did not grow up in the church, and then the first four, my my faith background is Catholic, and those first four years as a new believer, I worshipped in the Catholic Church. Well, you know, we had nuns and. Man, those nuns did all kinds of things including starting orphanages and organizations and oh yeah you know and so then it came into the evangelical church and this whole weirdness you know you know, finding myself saying to my, saying to myself internally of well you know i don't really know anything about the bible so they must be right even though it didn't feel right like yep. stuff that people are telling me i'm like this doesn't feel right though and it mm-hmm. doesn't really look like jesus But, you know, hey, you guys grew up in the church, obviously, you know, something I don't know, you know, but then the more I actually study scripture, I'm like, no, you're actually wrong. (laughs) No, I was right. I think it is important for us in in that journey and in the transformation that happens. So what does it look like as assistant professor, hopefully soon to be associate professor, right? What does that look like for you to fulfill your role?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. Um, kind of like what it takes to fulfill that role. Um, I believe that sort of each professor, similar to each pastor, sort of fulfills their role uniquely with who they are and who God's called them to be. Uh, you kind of find your voice, your passion, your rhythm. So the basics to fulfill my role, um, like as I'm kind of moving into this space was lots of teaching and adjuncting and going to school forever. <laughs> um, You know, Joanne, I think I'll just share this really briefly. When I began to adjunct for the first time in Oregon, I was so nervous. And I thought this would just be kind of a fun thing to share. Uh, My heart's desire was for people to know how much God loves them. I think that is an interesting similarity with, I think, a lot of pastors and professors and seminary professors is that's, I think a lot of us just want students to know that. And then it manifested in this space of the classroom through helping students read the Bible well. And I remember after my very first semester, my very first class, it was Bible survey, where I took undergrads, and many of them are first-year students, and we went through the entire Bible, one semester from Genesis to Revelation. And at the end of the semester, I wasn't sure how it went, and I can be very self-critical, so I realized, yes, I love teaching, but I also thought at the end of the term, this is a complete disaster. (laughs) But then I received the student reviews and it turned out the students loved the class. They also wrote how excited they were to start to read their Bibles in a new way. And some for the first time, some were super newbies. Like they would like approach me in class and ask, how do I look a verse up? And oh, it was wonderful and fun. So I read those reviews and I thought, okay this is what I want to do. I knew I loved teaching and then I realized students are being transformed. I'm being transformed. There's nothing else in the world I wanna do. So that was kind of part of my moving into that role. But specifically the kinds of nuts and bolts are, involves research, publishing, creating courses, participating in committees. Um, I found that kind of stepping into this role as a professor it requires my ability to organize really well, also to rest well. Uh, Writing is hard, and when you're exhausted, it's it's pretty much impossible. So finding rhythms has been really critical for me. Writing not only takes research, but creativity. So I've had to learn to find spaces in the week where I think best and create those spaces. Also, part of my role is presenting research at conferences. And I have to say, not every professor, as I mentioned earlier, loves to do this, but it's one of my favorite things ever. Um, I call conferences nerd camp. I don't think I'm the only one that's done that. Um, I think others do as well, but when you present a paper and it actually took me the very beginning of my, kind of my calling into this kind of let go of my pride, because sometimes you're afraid like, oh no, what if I say this wrong or, you know, whatever. And so once I got over that, I just let myself enjoy the process. So one of the cool things is, is you present your research and often sitting in that space are some of the leading scholars and they're listening to you, thinking with you, challenging you, and also offering ideas. And this can be just a very exhilarating process. Um, And so that's been a real gift and part of my role. Um, Another one of the areas that gives me joy in my current role at Nazarene Theological Seminary is journeying with students. As I think a lot of pastors do as well, you journey with people that are asking lots of questions. And as I mentioned earlier, like some women have come from theological traditions that don't encourage their gifts and leadership. And it's a wonderful safe space with seminary to process this. Sometimes your home church might not be as safe, especially if your theology is changing. And maybe as a woman or you know, even as a man thinking, you know what, maybe it is okay for women to lead in these spaces. So Sometimes people don't have space to help you process that, but seminary does. And so that's a great place to process, to watch, you know, connections uh, made with other students and the community that's created is so just rich and life-giving, just a joy um, in my role. So I do have some projects coming up this year. I have a volume coming out with Brill and it's uh, from my dissertation research. The title is Judges 19 through 21 in Ruth, Canon hey. as a Voice of Answerability. Um, and so this is kind of my passion project. I, with my own research, okay, you mentioned at the beginning, Joanna, the podcast, or how when you became a Christian and you started to like find yourself in evangelical circles, you realize that, yeah, these people know more about the Bible, but something's not sitting right. And so that is sort of, uh, I think I always encourage students and I'm so glad you listened to that feeling and you found out that, you know what, actually it's not sitting right because it's not right. <laughs> And so sometimes when you're in those spaces of research and learning, something doesn't let you go and it just sort of, you know, sits with you. And so I'll often tell my students, you know, you might find through the course of your master's, there's just something that you either don't like how something's presented or the way scholars have talked about it. And I just say, just kind of hold that. You don't have to figure it out right now, but often there's an opportunity maybe that the lord is inviting your voice into that conversation and so for me um that last three chapters of judges are just very violent and awful and you know you get to i know you're preaching on judges right now um, you get to the end and you're just like ugh like this is just this is terrible and so i just remember in in my masters thinking there was a question like what what is going on here And so I thought, huh, what is going on there? So it just sort of became this little project for me to kind of like dive into those chapters. Um, And one of the things that was really hard for me about those chapters is all women are silent and there's a lot of gendered violence. And so one of the gifts about having a Bible and a canon is there's lots of diverse voices kind of coming together and speaking into each other. There's often not one way to think about it. And in the Hebrew literature, one of the beautiful things about the way the Old Testament is written are there's these big spaces and they're called gaps. And often we just assume if a narrator doesn't comment negatively or a writer of the text, then that means it's okay. But as you and I know, reading silence is complicated. Mm. And often what the, what there's an invitation in these spaces to think well, what does this mean in conversation with other stories? And is this actually okay? And at the end of Judges, there's a lot that's not okay, even though there's not a lot of commentary on it. Like there is the refrain, everyone did as they saw fit, you know, everyone did, you know, it was right in their own eyes. Israel needs a king, you know, of course there's that sort of comment, but I thought, oh, there's got to be more. So anyway, so that's been part of my project. And what I do is look at the book of Ruth, and I find all sorts of connections of how The book of Ruth speaks into that gendered violence and silence. So that's kind of one of my projects, uh, just kind of one ethical response to that. That's within the canon or within the the canon itself. Let's see, what else do I have? I have a couple chapters coming out that I'm really excited about. One is with the foundry. Um, A bunch of Old Testament scholars got together, um, most in the Church of the Nazarene. But it's on uh, the Old Testament in 12 verses. So different scholars will take a dive into different key sections in the Old Testament. Of course, you know, we can't do the whole testament in 12 verses, but <laughs> but we each thought, let what what are the ones that we see is kind of key? And my chapter is on Exodus 19, one through six. And so I have fun, fun in that chapter. I call it the DTR moment that define the relationship, you know, <laughs> moment in the in, in the old testament. And then I also have another chapter coming out uh, this summer, I believe, um, in a clothing and research book. And so this is a new area that I'm, a new field actually of uh, dress hermeneutics that I'm getting to be a part of with a research group I'm in. And so in that chapter, I look at Tamar in Genesis 38 and Ruth and how dress functions as a powerful literary device. And so dress isn't just clothing, but it can be different articles and you know, like staff or, you know, different things, you know, just than just dress, but uh, the different ways, different key elements work within the narrative. And then, you know, lectures, teaching at churches. I know I have a lecture coming up at uh, Central Christian College in Kansas on Monday. So lots of components to, to the work I do. It's
0: interesting, the dress hermeneutics,
1: we don't think about that much in our culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, like even when we think about, Aaron and you know how he was dressed and then you know when he dies and they take all his clothing off and they put him on his son and that's so profound but then also i want to go back to your thing on judges 19 and 20 because i hope you're gonna also somehow make ties to lot and his daughters right are you gonna okay yeah. yeah
1: oh it is such a i mean the story is so similar right like in so many of the the movements the characters what's happening but then it's even more depraved at the end of Judges. And so, and that's one of the great things when you have similar stories is to compare because often the, the writer is trying to like highlight what's different, right? And then how much worse it is, right? At the end of Judges, like it's just so much political instability and chaos. And definitely like it is a fascinating comparison with Genesis 19. And even when... In this story, uh, there's this moment, well, the awful moment, so listeners, you can uh, maybe stop here and then restart it, but um, but there's a moment where he takes this Pelegesh, right, this often uh, translated his second wife or concubine type woman, um, but there's this moment where he cuts her up into 12 pieces and he sends her uh, to the tribes because he's so, you know, wh- you know, mortified at all this that happened to him, you know, in that moment, the knife, It's fascinating because it And the only other time we have a definite article um, is in the story of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham takes the knife. And so it's just fascinating the different key words being used to draw in other stories, like you mentioned Genesis 19, to help us to think about this story in conversations with others. And I think that's one of those uh, really fascinating things where we're not asked to just read it and then move on. It's like, oh no, we need to like, think about this story even though this is a really awful story I actually in part of my project I compare it to this kind of this genre of grotesque realism where like I don't know if you ever watched horror movies growing up I did like with horror movies it's actually kind of a genre of like we're trying to it's excessive right and there's points being made although it's awful and I don't watch them now but there is there is a literary artistry to that uh, to go over and above and beyond, right, with the violence, um, and so just kind of communicating that excessiveness, and, you know, trying to, like, wake you up, right, this is really bad, really bad right now for Israel, um, we need, there a shift needs to happen, yeah, I bet in your own research, you're finding a lot of fascinating connections as you prepare these sermons, and yeah.
0: Judges always has fascinated me, and I, um, actually, you're the one, you recommended the commentary, Isabel, what's her last family, name? Emily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah so many good points in her commentary of you spread right at the beginning, you see all these women when right. When they come into freedom, you see all these women and their voices. And, and then as it, as it comes unraveled, uh, they become more and more mar- marginalized, which should also speak volumes to the church, right? Right. Uh, if we're supposedly walking in freedom in Christ, and then the less we see, uh, the more we see women, women and minorities being marginalized, that should tell us something about the church that we're going the wrong direction. Yeah, we should be moving towards freedom, not away from it. So you have that, but then you also have the Wine Coop Center. So I guess, one, how how do those two pieces fit together? And then can we just talk about the Wine Coop Center. What is it? Because you guys did like a relaunch or revamp or something. Right,
1: right. Yeah. So we're kind of, we're in that building phase. We just relaunched this last fall. I was really honored to be asked to step into this role and sort of think about the ways that this center can continue on with its legacy, and then also kind of dream forwards. So it's the Wine Coop Center for Women in Leadership. It used to be the Wine Coop Center for Women in Ministry. It was founded in 2003 as an initiative of Nazarene Theological Seminary, and it was through the generosity of Ralph and Mildred Bang's Wine Coop Estate. Uh, Dr. Mildred Bang's Wine Coop was an influential pastor and theologian in the Church of the Nazarene. And so the relaunch of the center really seeks to carry on this legacy of supporting women's journeys in the area of ministry and the academy. Um, And so right now we're expanding its vision to support women in new frontiers of leadership, to reimagine identity and call and possibility. Um, So the center seeks to network with groups, to strive to contribute to areas of influence, competency, and encouragement for emerging leaders. So um, one of the things that we're doing is really thinking through how can we equip women? And so right now we're actually kind of researching Leia foundation foundations. I'm really hoping uh, we can create avenues for really um, perhaps like leadership training opportunities um, certificates, things like that. But these things are, you know, they take time to do well. And so right now I'm really processing with our leadership team Uh, ways to do that, to enter in and and to think through not just women in ministry, but in other, you know, other areas, nonprofits, things, because I think as we come together, it just shapes and sharpens in beautiful ways, right? Often the skills that you have in one area, they they also are in others, right? And so, and often I know a lot of women like who are now pastors, they come from other fields, but a lot of that has influenced what they do now in really wonderful ways, kind of like cross-sectionality with that. One of the things also is that we're releasing interviews this spring. Just like what your podcast does, it's really sharing stories. And so I think one of the gifts of that is often in these spaces of leadership, they're very lonely and just hearing another women's journey is can be so deeply encouraging. So I have a few of those coming out. I know uh, Christine Hungs is coming out soon, Reverend uh, Christine Hung. And it's so, so much fun to interview her. Like we talk from everything she even brings up menopause and I'm just like loving it. I'm just like, oh girl, you just went there and this is fantastic. Um, and so just like those realities of being women in leadership positions and being fully human and who we are and that's okay. And what was it? Somebody I was talking to recently, um, often we're put in high risk situations as women in ministry, right? Like you're not given the church that is fully, you know, funded or you're, you know, you're part-time, but really Who's part time, right? You're full time, full time with part time pay, and so often it's like that. What is it that glass ledge? It's sort of like, oh yeah, you can have this church, but we're it's in a real high risk situation. So good luck with that. So for a lot of women, right, it's like, wow, that's your first ministry, and you're you're doing something that is really really hard, and so sometimes you know what it doesn't go well, and that's okay, (laughs) right? And so how do you kind of persevere and push through that and And not give up on yourself because often a lot of, I think a lot of women, whether professors, pastors, other areas, we expect ourselves to excel. And then when it doesn't go the way we thought we could think, wait, did I not hear that call well or whatever? So great encouragement as you, as you do with this podcast of just hearing stories and to know, you know, you're not alone in this and, and what you do, it's really, really hard. It's not, it's not going to be perfect and have grace for yourself and others. And, uh, and just, you know, it's okay. Just get up the next day and just kind of keep going, you know, so.
0: Interesting, because I would love to pick your brain more, not right now in this thing, but one of the things we've been, I've been talking about is that similar, to what you said about uh, as women, you most likely our first assignment is going to be in a church that's already really struggling. You take this church on and it's your first assignment. You and I can both list, list woman after woman who well, here's a church. I was gonna close it, but uh if you want to give it a shot, right? Yep. And now you've taken this church, and then if it fails, so now you're not only are you a woman, you know, you're a clergy woman, you're also a clergy woman with a failed church on your resume, which then of course makes it even harder. So we also know that there are because there are so many men, that there are a lot of organic coaching moments that just happen. Yeah. So you're at you're at an event and Happen to be sitting with all the menu, all these menu keep are you sitting with, and there's someone there who has a lot more experience than you. And just in the conversation, things will come up. And so all of a sudden, you're gleaning experience from these pastors who have more experience. And it wasn't intentional, nobody sought you out. It's just it was an organic moment that was created Mm -hmm. simply because there are so many of them. So, how do we fill in the gaps? How do we take that organic and make it intentional? So that women who are find themselves in their first lead pastor assignment or their first church plant or whatever, have a coach to walk with them Mm -hmm. through that first year to, you know, kind of create or intentionally, you know, create some of those organic moments, right? Like, um, so
1: that that can happen. Well, I'll say a couple of things real quick. That's what the White Center, we're hoping we're in very early conversation, but thinking through coaching opportunities, like if there's any way we can network and use a platform and we don't have a lot of funding, but I'm hoping, we're hoping, you know, to shift that. And then it's like, and then to do create even certificates and executive leadership, to be able to say, you know what, I wasn't at that huge church, but I have had training. Right. And so I think if there's ways to get the training even if it's not organic in your in your church to say, hey, I understand, you know, this conflict management or finances or different things, different ways that that skills can be acquired. And I think then women, there's sort of less of a look like a high risk to hire, right? You know what I'm saying? Like if it's like, oh, this has been their one thing. But to go back to your church plant, I actually, oh, my heart goes like so much towards those women that have had failed church plants. As our family actually church planted. And then eight years later, closed the church. So we were there from the beginning to the end. This is in Oregon. And it was one of the most wonderful, hardest things we have ever done. And as you know, um, having walked with women that have gone through those steps of closing a church, it is deep and hard work to be a church chaplain and to close. And that's the thing I think that saddens me a lot and grieves my heart is that actually the, the skill and care it takes to do that. I don't even know. I don't even know if I have words. It's a beautiful thing and it's so hard. I think for anyone that does chaplain work and you walk with people that are dying, it's sacred space. Mm-hmm. And closing a church is sacred space. And as we know within our theology, in theology, right? Death and resurrection, it is part of who we are, right? The, the closing is not the end. But there is an important part to the process and to not, and I've had friends that have helped close a church and the pastor's like, I can't handle it, I'm out, right? I don't want that on my CV. You don't want to do the hard work. And I've had friends that have said, you know what, I came in, you know, two years ago, but I'm gonna stay and help close this church as the lead pastor. And so there's something very brave and courageous about that. And so I I hope at some point the rhetoric will be changed. Like you've closed a church, wow, you stuck it out to the end and loved people through the hard stuff while well, you're grieving yourself. Right. And it takes a lot after to close a church, right. To do the healing work, the hard work you're in a liminal space then. And often denominations will look at you like, right. That's a black spot on your record. Like, Oh no. Of course I have very dark humor. So I'll be careful not to go there. <laughs> but I know like all the things I tell my husband, well, look at us. Right. We actually closed a church. And then there was a church in a different denomination. So it was with the Evangelical Covenant Church. And then there was this church actually in a reformed <laughs> a Reformed church that went through the same process of dis- discerning closure. And they decided not to close. This was in Sonoma, California. We ended up, this is like such a crazy part of our story, but we ended up then in California, back home where I'm from, at this church that wants to revitalize, this little church in Sonoma. Beautiful people. It was wonderful. So we're like healing from the closure. And then we're there. And then I'm like, well, Art, if they end up having to close, we could like, we could like highlight and we could like sell you as like the church reaper. And he's like, no, he's like too soon. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm joking. But it was such a a beautiful, healthy little church. They're like, you know what? Um, I think the median age of the person, people at that church, you know, they're like 75, but they're just like, you know what? We want to be a blessing in this community. We want to do work to stay open and we're willing to do it, you know, but I think there's something also beautiful when a church realizes like ours in Oregon that we're really tired and we're done. A lot of those people ended up in other communities, which was such a beautiful thing, but it was like, you know what? That's a hard call to make and to let yourself make that call. I mean, there's so so much courage in that. And anyways, I actually have a doctoral student right now who's working on her project is on church closing and the spiritual formation that happens in a in a closing church. So- And for men and women who've closed churches to, you know, to like not give up and to know, you know, to hope again at some point, but to know, like, there's a lot of us who've been there. It's just something we don't like to talk about because you do, you feel like a failure, but it's so much bigger and deeper than that. But at the same time, that's, you know, some of that deep identity work. I have a friend who,
0: different denomination, that's what he does. He did a really good job, ended up becoming his, really his gifting and his strength of, Helping them to discern and then helping them to end well, mm. uh, and to f- and to feel like they, I guess, really embrace Ecclesiastes chapter three. There is a time and a season for everything. Right. You know, it's really beautiful, and, and that be a legacy church. Right? Yeah, that be oh, a legacy gosh. church. I always like to kind of close out the podcast with this idea of who are wrestling with the call to ministry, both women and men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, advice for them. Uh, on wrestling with that call, but then also, even many who are already ordained, like myself, wrestling with this idea of, well, how do I figure out how much education I need? Mm, Right. Should I go back? What's the value of it? And I think, especially for women, man, will I ever pay off these loans? You know, kind of like there's <laughs> oh, yeah. all of those things that are in there. So, like, how do you decide how much education you need? So, I guess those two
1: questions. Okay, great. Yeah, I love those questions. Okay, so advice for men and women wrestling with a call to ministry. Okay, I think the best advice I can think of is to keep wrestling. <laughs> um, I, I've often journeyed with men and women in this calling and. First of all, I want to, I think before even giving advice, I just want to say thank you. Wherever you are in the process of discernment, thank you for wrestling with the invitation to go into ministry. It is really hard and holy work. Um, From my experience and journey with students, each step is a step of faith. Um, And you may not even have a clear vision of where it ends up, but I just want to encourage you, and I guess that's my advice, is to just take the next step and keep wrestling. Quickly for those starting out in ministry, maybe they've said yes and taken that next step. I just want to say, enjoy the dreaming phase. As I was thinking about this question, little things started coming to mind uh, as I thought about our 20 plus years of ministry. Keep good friends close. Make it a point to keep connecting with them. I want to say if stuff hits the fan, but it's usually when stuff hits the fan in ministry, you you need people that love you and know you And that can remind you that you're not crazy. (laughs) I know that sounds silly, but it is a huge gift. Ministry is challenging. And so really, I just want to say thank you for all those who say yes to that call, um, for choosing to love extravagantly. There is a cost to saying yes to ministry, but I have a feeling that if the invitation is there for you, there's probably nothing else you'll be satisfied doing. So whatever shape your ministry takes place, whether traditional spaces or new and innovative ways, um, just encourage you to wrestle and just say yes to that next step. You don't have to have it all figured out. Um, So I think that is probably my advice and I'll leave it there. Um, And then how much education? Okay, so this is, I have to be honest, Joanne, I love this question. Um, I am often in these spaces of discernment with students Um, I think there's two ways to approach this question. One is how much education do I have to have, (laughs) right, for what I'm doing? And then the other is how much education do I sense I need and am invited into? And I firmly believe that education is a journey. It is not always about the end result, the degree. In my own journey, um, I'll share a little bit. I realized that entering into a Ph.D. program was the next step. I really had to wrestle with this step. I love thinking of things in steps. (laughs) Um, I was aware that the job market was not great in my field, but I knew this was an invitation from God to say yes, no matter the outcome. And there's many reasons sometimes that you can't finish a degree, health, family, other things. So I decided to just say yes to start. And as I look back now, I can honestly say I'm so grateful that I did, even if I wouldn't have been able to finish. Uh, many of your listeners do not know me personally or my personality but to be able to say that is huge i am a finisher i struggle in liminal space i'm like a child having a tantrum (laughs) i am a sort of a suck it up buttercup and get it done (laughs) that's sort of my motto so for me i knew i had to like dig deeper into places of identity am i my degree no has the lord invited me into this yes i will just trust that first step of becoming So this is a long response. Uh, For some students, they don't need a master's or a doctorate, but they are learners and they thrive in their environment. So even if they don't need that degree for their job, they are learners. So I tell them, if you have support of your families, able to figure out resources, often education is a beautiful and healthy complement to your ministries. Your ministries will be blessed by your engagement in the next level of learning. It's actually sometimes a part of who you are. And embracing that it's a journey can be freeing. Will it take sacrifice? Yes. But so many things in our lives do, and it's about how we order the things we love, right? Um, So like myself, there are certain life seasons that are better than others to get education. I'll actually uh, get to be a part of my own delayed graduation this May at Canterbury Cathedral. My whole family will be there, and I know I'll be a crying mess because my kids and my family have sacrificed a lot and journeyed with me in this space. So all of that to say, for each person, it takes discerning on the if and the when. And for some, if your ministries are exceptionally difficult, I just want to maybe offer this. It can actually be a life-giving space to grow in. I think it's worth processing and discerning with who you are and what you feel called to do. And again, it's not about the finished product, the degree. That is a great part of it, but it is about who we become on the educational journey.
0: Those are good questions to uh, ask ourselves, especially I like this idea of what have I been invited into? What is, what is God inviting me into? Well, I mean, obviously we know our identity doesn't come in that probably for some people, the, the wrestling comes with, can I afford it? And then will I use it? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so maybe I'm willing to figure out how to afford it, but if I'm not going to use it, then you feel like it's wasted you know, wasted time and wasted mm-hmm. money. And so, those, some of those questions maybe help us wrestle with it more of mm-hmm. discerning. Obviously, there's a lot of other timing and where, yes. like, where are you going to yeah. go and what kind of a degree and in those kind of things, too. Is, but those are probably good starting points. And I guess maybe people are there's like who would be good, good people resources to bounce some of those things off of
1: really finding people that are, that you admire and are doing maybe some of the things you want, have conversations and ask them what their journey's been. There's something about personal networking that I just love. (laughs) Um, And that a lot of things have come from that. Sometimes maybe the authors you're reading, like, who do you love? Where do they teach? I want to be shaped and formed by them. And I encourage, like, there's one student I had a conversation with, like, dream big. Like, if If money and all of that weren't an issue, right? And I know it is, it is. But um, in God's economy, sometimes crazy awesome things happen. And so, if there's someone that you're like, oh, they're too famous, or they're too, you know what? (laughs) This particular student, I just love this story. He's one of my students, and he's like, oh yeah, I actually emailed him, and he said he would take one more student on. um, He's a really famous New Testament scholar. uh, If I wanted to study with him, and I'm like, look at that, you just just ask, right? Like, I think we need to be bold and asking you'll be surprised at how kind people are um, and willing to like, just, just let you process with them. And, and, and also for those that don't respond, maybe to your emails, just move on. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, but I think just having those conversations, call the schools up. I know like say you're th- thinking about NTS, like Jake Edwards, would be great to talk with um, and just a process with you. The great thing about a lot of recruiters, they know the programs really well. They can hear what you're bringing in and help you discern next steps. And even if maybe this isn't a good fit, right? They're not going to want you to come uh, if it's not going to be the best fit for you for whatever reason. And so I think just, you know, just go for it, right? Take the, just start the conversations. You don't have to get it all figured out, right? The next two weeks, right? You have, you have time. And so who you love, who do you want to be shaped by? And um, yeah. And then even maybe what's conveniently close. I know for myself, a lot of my, decision was I knew I wanted to study I knew I didn't want to study in a Christian environment I kind of had that that for my undergrad and for my master's and I wanted to really explore at a bigger university and be challenged in those spaces and but I was kind of restricted because of our church plant and my daughter with some of her uh, issues I, we couldn't move and so there's no phd programs around so then that meant okay i need to look overseas and so sometimes there are those restrictions but at the same time that's okay right that's just part of the discerning process and so i ended up finding a wonderful wonderful supervisor who was kind responded to my emails and and it was really cool doing because uh part of i used uh, mikhail bakhtin this russian literary critic for my work philosopher he's brilliant but she actually had done a bunch of research with him and never written anything. So it was just like the Lord like networked this incredible, you know, um, pairing and anyways, there's a little bit of advice of maybe how to go about it. Um,
0: maybe sometimes people just need permission to take those risks and reach out, right? That I hope that a little bit of you know, that idea comes through this podcast. Not just just this episode, but all of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, that as people hear these stories, that it gives them permission to you know, dream a little wider and deeper and, you know, listen, listen to God a little bit more closely. Any last words, anything you want to share that's on your heart that I haven't asked?
1: Oh, I don't know if I can think of anything, but I just want to encourage your listeners to just say yes. And you're worth it. You are worth it. You're worth a risk. Go for it. Yeah. And be encouraged that God's not done with you, uh even if you've been through some really hard dark valleys so yeah i think those are kind of the things that have been on my heart as we started this conversation today uh to just know that you're loved um and god's not done